0: One announcement before we get going. I uh, There will not be a Wednesday night Bible class or prayer meeting on Wednesday night, the 11th of October, which is two weeks from tonight. So make sure you mark that down so you don't show up and uh, uh, think the rapture occurred and somehow you missed it. I will be going to Southern California for the... Uh, Annual WHW Pastors Training Conference, and so you can be praying for me in regard to that because that's always a exhausting week. Exhausting. I'm getting exhausted just thinking about what's getting ready to happen because it's a so much goes on. It's a high energy week and a lot of demands, and but it's always exciting to see what the results are as well. So you can pray for that and and. Uh, I think, are there any other announcements we need to pray for? We need to remember to make? I guess that's it. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to uh, study God's Word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so if you need to use 1 John 1 9, then you have that option, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word, to come to an understanding of the overall scope of your plan and your purposes in human history, and to understand how each part of the scriptures needs to be interpreted in light of your plan, in light of the time in which it's revealed and and its original purpose and function. Father, now as we study your word, may we be impressed with the scope and the dimensions and the magnificence of your plan and be challenged to continue to grow and study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in our fourth lesson on God's plan for the ages, covenants and dispensations. Last time we looked at uh, dispensations and the angelic rebellion, how... The dispensational plan of God relates to the angelic conflict which took place before eternity or before uh, man was created in the garden and the creation of man in the garden is directly tied to what took place, uh, in prehistoric times in Satan's rebellion against God. By way of review, we uh, looked at Some key words to begin with that the Bible talks about times and ages and seasons and various different words such as chronos, kairos, ionos, all of which tend to designate the fact that God has a a time frame in which he is working out his plan and purposes. The key word that that has come to be used for this is in the English is the word dispensation which translates the Greek word archonomos. But Oikonomos really doesn't have the idea of a time period. It emphasizes the fact of an administration and a management, that God is managing or administering human history. And he's taking it through various various uh, periods of time, demonstrating different facets about his character and about grace. Uh, we define dispensation, then, as a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan, because it's distinct and identifiable, we can say that there are certain characteristics that are unique to each dispensation, so it's clear when God has changed uh, the administration. We said that there were two major schools of interpretation, dispensationalism and replacement theology, whether it's Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, uh, Calvinism, uh, Reformed theology in the guise of either uh, Congregationalism, Presbyterianism, Reformed theology, whatever it's called. All of those systems, all of those systems believe that God, that when Israel crucified Christ, rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that God was no longer going to fulfill the promises and prophecies to Israel literally. That the church would become the Heir of those promises and prophecies and that it was the church who would spiritually uh, benefit from those uh, covenants and covenantal promises God had made in the Old Testament. On the other hand, dispensationalism sees that all scripture, not just uh, everything but prophecy, but all scripture, including prophecy, must be interpreted according to the same standard, the same principle, which is called a literal or plain uh, view of interpretation, and we'll look at that in more detail as we go through this study. But the point is that it's not that it's not literal versus figurative, because even in a literal interpretation, you understand that God uses the Bible uses figures of speech. But you're not going to come in and say, "Okay, God promised Israel a literal land, took Abraham to a literal." piece of real estate, gave boundaries to that piece of real estate, such as the Euphrates River, the river of Egypt, the Mediterranean, and then now because Israel uh, has rejected Christ that that really refers to heaven. See, all of a sudden you've taken something that that was literal to begin with, and now all of a sudden it just is spiritual, it becomes allegory. So that's the real issue. And everybody is in one camp or another. And frankly, I I can't remember who said this. Some famous dispensationalist said it's been. I've read two or three that have made the point that if you are not going down to the uh, tabernacle or temple to sacrifice, then you're a dispensationalist. And the problem is you're just not consistent. But there's a lot of truth to that statement that God clearly has changed the way he administers history. We saw that there are various misconceptions about dispensationalism and that people just really aren't taught very well. So we have to begin with a definition which I uh, set forth, and I'm going to break it down for you in four parts because somebody kept uh, sitting back there, I don't even see him here tonight, there he is, saying, I think I finally got your definition down. So we're going to break it down into, uh, wait a minute, something's not working. We're going to break it down into four parts, and hopefully you'll be able to get a little better handle on this somewhat lengthy definition of dispensationalism. First part, a dispensation, therefore, is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history, and it's slowly coming into focus on the projector. A dis- it is a distinct and identifiable administration in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history Ephesians 3:2 and Colossians 1:25 to 26 a closely connected but not interchangeable word is the word age i will use them sometimes synonymously but i in the way i approach dispensations i think of an age as something broader than a dispensation for example, I would, as we'll see tonight, I would think of the age of the Gentiles between Adam and Abraham as being subdivided into three dispensations. And each of those dispensations is uh, shifted on the basis of a covenant. So I see a covenant as the prime issue in moving history along from one, one uh, administration to the next. But there are clear identifiable ages as well. There's the age of the Gentiles. There's the age of the Jews, which has the age of the patriarchs, the age of law. But I would also see almost sub-dispensations in the in the age of uh, the patriarchs. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then you have about 400 years of slavery in Egypt when there's nothing. So those are clearly distinct periods. And then you get into... Um, I mean, they're not like a major dispensation, but there's clearly uh, some distinction going on there. Then you get into the age of the law. You have the theocratic kingdom. Then you have the monarchy. Then you have the divided monarchy. Then you have uh, Israel out in captivity. And then you have the the post-exilic period. And then there's silence for 400 years. So you can subdivide the dispensations into... Uh, different uh, segments of history as well. church age, you have two breakdowns. You have the pre-canon period and you have the post-canon period. Now I, I haven't fully developed the thought yet, but one of the things that I was that I was uh, thinking about the other day is that there seems to be a, a section in each of these dispensations where God is more directly involved, and then there's a period of indirect involvement. For example, in the patriarchal period you have god's direct involvement he appears and reveals himself and reaffirms the covenant with makes the covenant with abraham reaffirms it with isaac jacob and joseph and then there's silence and then god appears at the beginning of the theocracy where you have god actually ruling and reigning israel as the as the king and then you have a less involved period when god is no longer the, act, the actual king when he establishes the monarchy and then you get into the church age and you have the pre-canon period when God is still specifically directly involved day in, day out. With um, uh, You still have your miracles and signs and wonders and revelation going on because the canon it hasn't been completed yet. But then once the canon is closed, you have a period of less involvement, less direct involvement, shall we say. It's a more indirect involvement. So you see a pattern like that in every Every dispensation of direct involvement and less direct involvement. And it shifts from, a, from a period to period. So there is clearly a time element involved. Third aspect of the definition. God manages the entirety of human history like a household. Moving humanity through sequential stages of his administration. Determined by the level of revelation he has provided up to that time in history so we understand that th- that each dispensation has a certain amount of information given to them or revealed to them by God and that that revelation is when that is increased then you usually have some sort of dispensational shift then the fourth part each administrative period is characterized by revelation that specifies certain responsibilities Frequently, there is a specific test in relation to those responsibilities, but not always a specific test. In several dispensations, sometimes it's just the uh, amalgam of the responsibilities that are outlined for that dispensation. Then there is failure in the realm of the responsibilities of the test, and then God's gracious provision of a solution when failure occurs. And then in the second session... I went into the fact that these dispensations are moved along by what's called a covenant. Everybody about done with that? Write fast. You have to. If you haven't learned to write fast by now, you're, you're, you're in trouble. I mean, going, it was going to Bible class, I think, that ruined my handwriting. Trying to write everything down and shorthand and everything else and also taught me to take notes. Then my handwriting got really bad when I had to write Hebrew and Greek. Okay, covenant. A covenant is a contract between God who is seen as the party of the first part. In every covenant, God is the initiator and man is the responder. God is the party of the first part who makes a sovereign disposition, obligating himself in grace to bless man who is party of the second part. Now, I think that is is uh, crucial to understand that God obligates himself it is God who puts himself in a box I remember years ago one of the first times I really got in a discussion with somebody who was a charismatic and I said well God doesn't uh, give people the gift of tongues anymore and their response was and you've all heard this well I'm just not going to put God in a box just that sanctimonious piety that's just so full of a lack of thinking it's amazing See, it's not the fact that somebody who doesn't believe in the gift of tongues is putting God in a box. The issue is whether or not Scripture, God has revealed that he's going to work in certain ways or not work in certain ways during different periods of time. Uh, But you always have people who never understand the issues. In fact, if you study history long enough, you will understand that at most times when there is a crisis, 95% of the people don't understand the issues. 2.5% 2.5% are on the bad side, 2.5% are on the good side, and the other 95% don't have a clue until they start seeing the results of something 10 or 15 years down the line. And then they'll gradually you'll see a number of people begin to wake up. But most people are making decisions on all kinds of factors other than uh, studying out the issues and thinking them through. And that's true for pastors and theologians as well. I always think of the Council of Nicaea because that was basically the breakdown there. All these theologians and only about 5% of them really understood the issues in relationship to the person of Christ. Anyway, a covenant is a contract between God, party of the first part, who makes a sovereign disposition, obligating himself in grace to bless man, party of the second part. There are two types of covenants. There is what is called a conditional, some, I like the word temporary, because it, the only two covenants that are really conditional are the Adamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic covenant, it's not that God's not going to be involved with Israel if they break the covenant, but that God said, if you break the covenant, I am going to chastise you, take you out of the land, remove physical blessings from you. But it was that this was a temporary covenant. That's the whole argument of the writer of Hebrews. He goes in, he quotes Jeremiah 31, and he says it was called an old covenant because the the very fact that it was called uh, old indicated that there would be something new. So uh, it's temporary, or sometimes it's called bilateral. Bilateral, that means there's two parties, and both parties have obligations on them. Bilateral, that there's an obligation upon Israel to obey the covenant, the stipulations in the covenant, or they would not have the promised blessings. So that's the terminology that's used conditional, temporary, or bilateral. On the other hand, there is an unconditional, unilateral, or permanent covenant. And all the covenants to Israel, except the Mosaic covenant, are unconditional because God has promised the blessings based solely on who He is. God does not say, Israel, you have to do this in order for me to give you the land. Abraham, you have to do this in order for me to uh, give you the land and to make your descendants a blessing. It's unilateral when in Genesis 17, when when God makes the covenant with Abraham, as a standard operating procedure in the ancient Near East when you make a covenant there is a sacrifice and both parties would sacrifice and put the parts of the animal on the altar and walk between the altars together but God causes a deep sleep like a coma or some say it's probably like a dreamlike trance where Abraham was conscious but he couldn't move he could see what, got, what was going on but he couldn't move and God moved between the altars himself, indicating that he alone was obligating himself to the covenant, not Abraham. So it was unilateral, one party. God said, I'm making this covenant with you, and it's a permanent covenant. So in that sense, God's promised blessings are based solely on his grace promise, and they're not dependent on any human factors. And then last time I went through the fact that uh, looking at the angelic conflict that all of this in human history is to resolve the angelic conflict, that after God created the angels, he gave them volition. Uh, Lucifer, the highest of all the angels, uh, Lucifer rebelled against God, wanted to be like God, emphasizing his arrogance, his uh, lack of obedience to God. He was not a servant as he was designed to be. The angels, the term angelos, malach in the Hebrew means a messenger. They are designed to be subordinate to carry out God's wishes he rebels against that so you see arrogance you see a lack of humility lack of authority orientation lack of role orientation and so Lucifer challenges God when God punishes them to eternity in the lake of fire he says well God you're not just you're not fair it's a violation of your character how can a loving God send his creatures to a lake of fire and furthermore you won't even give me a chance so give me an opportunity to, to demonstrate that I can run be God that I can do it. And so God instituted a, an experiment. In other words, something to validate His own position. He re- restored the creation of the earth in six days. Genesis uh, 2, I mean 1, 2, and following is a recreation. We looked at the fact that the terms tohu, vabohu, darkness, and deep, all used in Genesis 1, 2, are used throughout the rest of Scripture to indicate uh, judgment. So that is the indication the earth had undergone judgment because of Satan's rebellion, and then God takes the very planet that is a seat and source and focal point of Satan's rebellion, and He completely restores it to perfect environment once again, and then places uh, man there, places ma- man in the in the garden there in order to demonstrate the importance of volition and that. It is the creature's volition that is the real issue and not God's character. So in this whole demonstration, there are three factors that are emphasized in every single dispensation that go along with, are, are secondary to salvation. And, and, uh, but first let's look at, remember the covenants, now the Gentile covenants are, uh, the Edenic covenant and then the fall and then there's the Adamic covenant which ends with the worldwide flood. And then there is the Noahic covenant, which goes on until the end of uh, the present heavens and the present earth. So there will still be a rainbow and there will still be capital punishment and all the other provisions of the Noahic covenant are in effect until the millennium. And that's when they begin to be rolled back because uh, the fear of the animals is going to be reversed in perfect environment of the millennium. And then you have the Jewish covenants. These are all unconditional. They are the Abrahamic covenant, which has three paragraphs, land, seed, and blessing. The land paragraph is developed as the real estate covenant in Deuteronomy 30. It's The seed promise is developed as the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And... The blessing aspect is expanded in the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. The only only conditional or temporary covenant is the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 20 through Exodus 40. Now, in each of these periods, what is emphasized are three character qualities, three facets. The first is orientation to authority orientation to authority, it was Satan's rebellion, I will be like God. He violated the authority that God had established among the angels. He violated the authority of the creator-creature relationship. And so what God is going to emphasize in every generation and in every dispensation is the importance of humility. The importance of humility. Enforced humility is when you are in any kind of system where you are forced to learn and you have to submit to authority whether you want to or not. You have to go along with those who are, who are in authority. Sometimes that's in the family. When you're a child and you have parents, you have enforced humility. When you are in a marriage, there are role distinctions that's indemi- or that is that is integral to all of this. Uh, that there are role distinctions so first there must be orientation to authority and that happens at the job it happens everywhere everyone is under authority of one type or another and this means that we need to in relationship to God orient ourselves to God's integrity which is specifically referred to under the category of holiness in Isaiah 6 1 through 8 and we see Isaiah falling down before God and worshipping him, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It is orientation to divine righteousness in Philippians three, four through nine, and submission to divine authority in Luke ten thirty nine. So orientation to authority. Satan was not oriented to authority, and his attack, part of his attack at in the Garden of Eden, was to subvert the authority structure that God had established between Adam and the woman in the garden, between Adam and Isha. So there's a direct attack there and that is why it is in Christian marriage as a secondary level of, of uh, testimony that the the Christian marriage when the the husband and the wife are both believers and they are both oriented to authority and to their roles where they can orient to all three of these character qualities, role orientation, authority orientation, and, uh, uh, and personal love for God the Father, then they can demonstrate and have a level of testimony in the angelic conflict that has never before been seen in history because it was in the corporate union of the husband and wife that failure took place in the garden, and so all the aspects of the curse related to marriage can be to a large degree reversed and rolled back when the husband and the wife are both advancing to spiritual maturity. That's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 5. And we'll touch on that a little bit as we go through uh, Genesis 3 a little later on. Orientation to authority. Then the second is orientation to role. Orientation to role. Satan as Lucifer had a role to perform prior to the fall. He, in his rebellion against God, he rejected his role. He thought it's wrong to be a servant. I love the line in John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, where Satan says, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. And that's exactly the point. He was not oriented to his role. He rejected divine authority and thought that a role of of submission and being a servant was somehow demeaning to his person and you hear that argument over and over again today and it's another manifestation of a lack of orientation to authority and lack of role orientation and this is emphasized in the Hebrew of Genesis 2.15 in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15 man is created to do two things now open your Bibles with me we'll spend most of our time this evening in Genesis chapter 2 and I want to show you how, how this is usually translated and why the usual translation... Why, you can understand why it's translated that way, but it's not, it's not correct. Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him... Notice at this point, Esha has not been created yet. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. That's his mission. That's his responsibility in relationship to the garden. But the Hebrew there does not mean to cultivate and to keep it. That's really a very uh, cloudy, nebulous sort of translation. The first word, and I thought I would impress you with the Hebrew up here, the first word up here is, I think my battery's going here on my pointer, is laavda. The whole phrase is laavda ul shamara. La'avda ul shamara. And you have two words. Notice they both have this funny looking Hebrew letter here and here. And that is a preposition in the Hebrew for purpose. In other words, this is your purpose. That's what's being emphasized there and it's repeated as it should be with both verbs. The first verb is, or it's an infinitive, is avad and the second is shamar. Now, avad is the word that in the noun means slave or servant. It means to work, it means to minister, it means to cultivate. I have a number of definitions up here on the on the screen. Work, labor, sometimes it simply means to do. It means to expend considerable energy and intensity in a task or function. In the cal stem, in many cases, especially in... The covenant literature of of Exodus and Leviticus, it means to worship, it means to serve, it means to minister, it means to work in ministry. That That is, to give energy and devotion to God or a God. Now, I keep stressing the fact that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is covenant literature. It doesn't call it a covenant here, but we're going to see that in Hosea... Hosea writes that that Adam broke God's covenant. So even though the word covenant isn't in Genesis, the Holy Spirit makes it clear in Hosea that this is a covenant. And so in covenant literature, the word Abad has to do with serving the Lord of the covenant, the, the great king in a suzerain vassal treaty. So the point here is that this should not be translated it's simply "work." I understand he's placed in the garden, and this word generally means to work. So it's really easy to see why people would would take a, the the obvious uh, meaning that he's to work the garden, but that's not the sense here. I mean, it's that, but it's more than that. That's his worship. See, as a believer, the moment you enter into, as a believer, the moment you enter into salvation, you enter into full-time Christian service. It's not something you do later on just because I get paid for. It doesn't mean I'm in full-time Christian service and you're not. I'm in professional Christian service, but you're just as much in full-time Christian service as a missionary and ambassador from Christ from the moment you're saved on. Everybody is. Some people are failures at it and others are, succe- are succeeding at it. But every believer is in full-time Christian service at the instant of, of his uh, regeneration. And that is part of our worship, Romans 12.1. It is our spiritual service of worship. And the Greek word there that is used is used many, many times in the Septuagint to translate avad. So the point I want to make here is this just isn't talking about the fact that he's supposed to get out a hoe and uh, plant seeds and get out there and trim the trees because remember the garden's not cursed yet so nature is in cooperation with him it's not avad in terms of intensity work it is avad in terms of his role in subordination to god is to serve god in the garden but that second word is is really fascinating it is the word shamar and if you look it up in any hebrew lexicon it means to guard to protect or to watch over now, what is Adam supposed to guard the garden from? Lucifer, Satan, he's fallen. He's supposed to guard the garden. He's got a task. I mean, he's not out there just standing around with an M16 doing a manual of arms and marching back and forth. He has a specific job to guard the garden, and God has warned him that there is... I mean, he's not just sitting there uh, in naivete, and all of a sudden uh, his wife comes up and says, I was talking to the snake earlier, the snake said, this fruit's going to be really good. And did I tell you why everybody thinks it's an apple? I learned that when I was in, in France at the Cathedral of Chartres. We went through a fascinating uh, tour, in fact... The uh, oldest living English-speaking, or the English-speaking tour guide, is the oldest living exp- expert on the Cathedral of Chartres, which is the most uh, perfectly preserved medieval cathedral in France. And it was fascinating all the things I learned there. But he threw out a couple of tidbits that I was not aware of, and one is that that in Latin, back in the old Latin schools and the churches in the Middle Ages, they would use rhymes and puns to teach the Bible. And the the fruit is the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the word for evil in Latin is mallow. The word for apple in Latin is mallow. And so they made a little rhyme and a pun on mallow mallow. And that's how people started thinking that the fruit was an apple. So that's just a little extra two cents worth for you. No extra charge. And you get to Go impress somebody with your knowledge of trivia tomorrow. Shamar means to guard, to protect, to watch over. He's given a task to protect the garden from something that is going to be intrusive, that is inherent in the meaning of the word. So he has a role, and his role is to serve God, and he is to obey God by not eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he is to... Serve God in the garden and protect the garden from any encroachments of evil. Now, as we look at this whole breakdown, one of the things that impressed me was that these words are used again and again in terms of the integrity of God. And the emphasis on the integrity of God. And we see that in 1 uh, 1 Kings 3.6, Solomon is praying to God. And see, the whole issue in the angelic conflict is God's righteousness and justice. And so Solomon prays to God, and he says, Thou hast showed unto who? Thy servant David. They were called thy servants, the prophets. This whole idea of being a servant to God is foundational in the Old Testament. The believers that advance to maturity are all called servants of God. So you you showed unto thy servant David. So this is in contrast. This is why we're emphasizing this character quality of being a servant to God, because that is in contrast to Satan's modus operandi, which is to go out and do whatever you want to do, and, and being a servant is somehow demeaning. David, thy servant, my father, you showed him what? Great mercy. I want you to see the terms here that emphasize the integrity of God. Great mercy is the Hebrew word chesed, which means faithful, loyal love. It's always related to your love in relationship to how you spelled it out in your covenant. In fact, many scholars will translate it your covenant love. It is your eternally loyal, faithful love. It's a loaded word. It's not just mercy. It's not just love. It is eternally faithful, loyal love. It's a loaded word. According as he walked before thee, how? In truth, literally in the Hebrew, it is by means of truth. Uh, And in righteousness, setik, righteousness. And in uprightness, and here's an interesting word, yashar, which is the verb form, of a a name that is given to the spiritually mature of Israel later on, Jeshurun. So this is that which is upright. So David is said to be upright. That means he's walking consistent with the integrity of God. So in Yashar, uprightness of heart, that is his innermost being, his thinking, aligning it with God in submission and serving God. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, So I just wanted to go to that verse because it brings not only the integrity of God, the character of God in through all of these words, but it emphasizes the attribute of being a servant. This we're going to see is emphasized in every single dispensation. And my point is simple, is that in every dispensation there are responsibilities, but the core character qualities that God is emphasizing in every generation are in contrast to the character qualities that Satan exemplifies. It's authority orientation, role orientation, and personal love for God. See, that's what has happened in, with David. He loved God. So there's the personal love for God. And these three work together. Are, and should. And when you reach spiritual maturity, that's when they're there. They're not there beforehand. It takes maturity develop, to develop those character qualities. Jesus Christ demonstrates this. And his mission, in Matthew 20:28, 20, Jesus said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And the Greek word is diakaneo, which is fairly synonymous with doulos, or doulo, doulo which is the verb for servant or slave. But doulos is never applied to Jesus. He's not a slave. He's not a doulos. Because doulos emphasizes total dependency. And see, we're to be doulos, we're to be completely dependent on, on the Lord. But a diakoneo activity, this kind of being a servant as a diakoneo emphasizes volition. And so this is indicating that Jesus puts himself in this position volitionally. So volitionally he subordinates himself to God the Father... Because of his love for God the Father. So you have all three of these things linked together. We've studied his love for God the Father in our study in John. That he has personal love for God the Father. He is authority oriented and he is role oriented. And he doesn't think being a servant is demeaning. That's the whole issue in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 in the Kenosis passage. So just all I'm doing is giving you evidence right here. When we get to those dispensations we'll bring these out in more detail. I'm just showing that these three character qualities, authority orientation, role orientation, and then third, personal love for God the Father, are key in every single uh, dispensation. Now, let's start looking at the dispensations themselves. The dispensation themselves. The first dispensation is the Edenic Covenant. The Edenic Covenant. This is God's covenant with Adam. Key scripture, I'm going to outline every single one of these with about five major subpoints. A will be scripture, B will be person, C will be provisions. D is status and E is the dispensation. And sometimes F will be angelic conflict. So every one of these Covenants, dispensations will have five subpoints. A is Scripture: Genesis 1:28 to 30, Genesis 2:15 through 17, and Hosea 6:7. So, open your Bibles. You should have be at Genesis 2. Let's turn back to Genesis one 28 through 30. This is when God outlines. Man's responsibility. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. Notice, you should always notice inclusive words numerical type words and adjectives like every and all pay attention to that in this verse God said to them I have given you every plant yielding seed that means there is no plant on the face of the earth that was not for their food every plant yielding seed was on their food that is on the surface of all the earth twice he says once every once all that means there's not a tree or bush yielding seed that's not for your food. Now, that's not true today. But I wanted to make that point because we tend to blow right past those words when we read that many times. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Now, is that true today? Every No. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life i have given every green plant for food notice every 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 so god is all the plants are for the food for all the animals and it was so and that is the first scripture and then the second scripture is in second as in the second chapter verses 15 through 17 then the lord god took the man and put him into the garden of eden to to uh ser- serve and worship him there and to guard it I'll correct the translation. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Well, let's look at these provisions. A is the scripture, Genesis 1, to 32, 15 through 17, and Hosea 6, 7. And this is called the Edenic covenant. The terminology that's used here is clearly covenant terminology to, to work, to serve these words. Abad is used again and again in every covenant. So the terminology makes it seem like a covenant, even though the first time the word covenant is used isn't until Genesis 6. But in Hosea 6-7, it states that Adam broke the covenant in the garden. So this has to be the covenant that he broke. So we are justified in calling this a covenant. Second, the two people that are involved, A A is scripture, B is persons, God and Adam as the representative head of the human race. So God is the party of the first part and Adam is the party of the second part as the representative or federal head of the human race. His decision goes for all of his descendants. Point number C, the third subpoint: there are eight provisions eight provisions in the covenant let's look at them. first of all be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth Genesis 128a this shows that Adam and Isha were created they had sex in the garden in perfect environment I don't want anybody saying well that's what made it perfect see I got there before you did be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So so I remember arguing with somebody one time, and they said, Well, eating the fruit was merely an allegory for sex. And when they had sex, that was the sin that plunged the... And I thought, What a horrible way to look at life. God created sex for the pleasure of man and woman in marriage, not outside of marriage, and between a male and a female, and not between two males or two females. And it was... Designed first for pleasure and second for, uh, the, uh, for procreation and to, uh, fill the earth with children. So man was intended to do that. I don't think God allowed that to happen. Either they, they didn't last long enough in the garden for procreation to take place. They had recreation, but not procreation. And, uh, or God sovereignly Restrained the fertility until they passed or failed the test, one, one or the other. But he says the same thing to the animals, and if the animals are going to go out and start multiplying immediately, then it doesn't make sense to interpret this as, as something that didn't come into effect until sometime later on. So, they are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, Genesis one28 28a. Man is to subdue the earth. This is a mandate in relationship to the physical, the physical mandate of the planet, uh, subduing the planet. Before I go get into that though, I want to go back and make another point about the being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and all of these provisions. All of these are related to the fact that God said he was going to create man in his image and in his likeness. Now those terms relate to two. inseparable aspects. One is form and one is function. Form and function. Man is created in the form of the image of God. That refers to an immaterial being. But he is created immaterially with that form so that he can fulfill his function, which is to represent God. That's the function of an image. It represents you. And so his function is to represent God and to rule over the planet. So God gives him the internal makeup to do it but that doesn't just leave out the physical I'm not saying that the physical is the image of God but I'm saying don't just dismiss it because God in his omniscience knows that he has to design this creature with the kind of body and the kind of physical ability that will enable him to incarnate himself and give the highest possible creaturely revelation of himself he could not reveal him Parnate himself as a lion, as a tiger, as a crocodile or any of the other animals that are worshiped as gods in the pantheons of the ancient world he creates man with a specific body because he knows that in the Eventually, he is going to incarnate himself into that body, and so it must be a physical body that has the, that will give him the highest possible, uh, opportunity to reveal who he is and what he is. So don't dismiss the physical as, oh well, you know, that's just secondary or tertiary. It is, but it's not, uh, insignificant. It is very significant. But he has the form, and I use that word form in a very technical sense. I'm using it in the Greek sense of morphe where it says that Jesus did not it, it, Jesus existed in the form of God in Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. The morphe of God. And that's a technical Greek concept of the inner character of a person. The inner essence of a person which makes a thing what it is. And I'm using it that way that, that this is the form which is the inner essence of man. And... The reason I am so convinced that this does not, the image doesn't include the physical, although that's part, it's not part of the image, but it's part of the package. The image is not restricted to that is because the image is marred at the fall, and the next time you have an emphasis on image is when you get into the New Testament after Christ has come, and we are being restored into the what? The image of his firstborn, the image of Christ, and that's not physical, That is immaterial. That is in terms of our character and in terms of our immaterial makeup. So it is that immaterial part that is marred and it is recovered post-Christ in the church age. The recovery is more than it ever could be before because now we can be in the image of Christ. And because we are in the image of Christ, and listen to me, husbands and wives, because you are in the image of Christ, now you have the ability through spiritual growth to get back to the kind of perfect relationship that they had in the garden. Now, not I didn't say sinless relationship, but in terms of role and function, you can get back there only if you are growing and advancing in spiritual maturity. And that's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 5. So all of this is related to the image and likeness of, of, of God. There to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the first provision. Second provision: to subdue the earth. Now this is uh, from the Hebrew word kavash, and this is not a politically correct term. You know, you're not going to win any points with your your liberal um, uh, college pr- professor, or uh, if you teach this to your kids and you you should that um, uh, that man is to subdue the earth. It means to bring into bondage, to force to dominate, to tread, to subdue. That's the meaning of kabash. And it means that man was created above everything else in the physical natural world and he was to utilize everything for his purposes. He's given the raw materials and it's man's job to go out and exploit nature and improve. See, this is the difference between Christianity, the Christian view of nature, and the pagan view of nature. The pagan view of nature is you're part of nature, so you do everything to avoid changing nature. So, whenever you look at pagan Aboriginal tribes like the American Indian and the uh, Aborigines in Africa or, the, the, or in Australia, centuries and centuries and centuries go by, and there's no technological advance. Why? because you don't want to change anything you're part of nature you have to get into the flow of the chain of being and just stay there and you can't change anything and if you change the natural world that's the greatest sin there can be now that's where the tree huggers are coming from in their liberal uh, environmentalist mentality we don't want to change nature you know it's Gaia the mother goddess that's their whole reasoning it's just pure pantheistic paganism Christianity says that God created all the natural resources to be used responsibly by man not destructively by man but responsibly by man to advance and improve the earth and his condition on the earth so that's what it means to subdue the earth third he is to rule over the animal kingdom now I love dogs and cats and I probably love my dogs way too much But um, we are to rule over the animal kingdom. Now, I know this is going to aggravate all the animal rights activists, but we are to rule over the animal kingdom and use them. They are not of the same order of life as man is. That's why there is nothing necessarily wrong. Now, there'd be methodological problems, but there's nothing necessarily wrong with using animals for drug testing, for all kinds of things, because animal life does not have the value for God that human life does, and so you test things on animals in order to not harm mankind. God, of course, animal rights activists don't like God because who's the first person to slaughter an animal? It's God. Slaughters an animal and rips off the hide and tans it right there in front of Adam and Eve and makes clothes for him, first fur coat. So they probably went wa- walking through the land of Nob and somebody came along and threw paint on them or something. But See, man is designed to rule over the animals. You know, don't get, su- the whole animal rights activist thing is just another aspect of pagan thought. I'm not saying you should be necessarily cruel, I'm not, that, you're missing the point, is that, the creation is given under man's control for man to utilize responsibly. Fourth, every plant was given for food. Man was a vegetarian. He was not a meat eater. He was vegetarian from the, from the creation to the close of the flood. Every plant is given for food. Not just a few, but every plant is given for food. Genesis 1.29-30, Genesis 2.16. The fifth is they have defined roles there are clearly defined roles between the male and the female the man even though in Genesis 1, 20, 20, 20, or Genesis 1, and 29 God blesses them and says to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth when we compare that with Genesis 2 when God gives the mandates to Adam before he creates Shah, when he said it to them he said it to him and he was to communicate it to her because he's the head he's the responsible leader in the, on the planet so they had defined roles, and she's created, in Genesis 2.15, man's put in the garden, given his job responsibility, and the Lord God then comes along in verse 18 and says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Incidentally, for those of you who are here last time, here's another example of toad that's used in a non-moral sense. Remember I said that it's, the problem is that everybody wants to look at Genesis 1. When every time God says it was good or very good, that that means that Satan couldn't have fallen yet because everything was very good. And they want to interpret that Hebrew word tov to have a moral sense. And I said it doesn't have a moral sense most of the time. It means in alignment with my plans and purposes. And here it says it's not good for the man to be alone. And if good meant moral, then it would be that it's not moral for the man to be alone. And that would contradict Paul over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where he says where Paul advocates celibacy. So that would make Paul saying you have to be immoral, man, by being celibate, which gets you into real screwy logic. So just a little side note there. The Lord God said it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a, an ezer in the Hebrew, a helper, an assistant, someone who will help him achieve the goal. What's the goal? To be fruitful and multiply, so now there's sex. To subdue the earth, to rule over the earth, and to guard, and to serve God, worship Him, and guard the garden. So the woman is to help him accomplish the job. But He's the one given the responsibility, she's the assistant. And that's why I always tell single women, you better make sure you know where that man is headed in life, because your job's to help him get there. And maybe He's, if you get married when you're 20, 22, 24, 25, He doesn't know where He's going yet. And when he finally decides where he's going, you may not even want to go there with him. So you need to wait probably till you're 30 or 35 before you get married. For you parents, you can tell your kids I said that. They don't even need to start dating until they're 25, especially you guys with daughters. I know you'll, you'll be glad. I just put that in for, you, for your benefit. Their roles are defined in Genesis 2.18. They are to guard, that is, to, to guard the garden and to serve and worship God in the garden of Eden, Genesis 2.15. And then there is one prohibition, which is to not eat from the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And the penalty is spiritual death. In the day you eat, you will certainly die. A cal- perfect, imperfect, plus a cal of absolute means certainty. And we went through a detailed analysis of those verses. Uh, I think it was on Sunday morning a couple of weeks ago, so I don't need to repeat that for most of you. Others of you can get the tape. And H, there is a penalty. The penalty is spiritual death, Genesis 2:17. Well, what happens is that having gone through all of these um, these aspects, these these provisions, man violates it. The covenant is broken. That's the status of the covenant. Hosea 6, 7 says, but like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously with me. So the point is that Adam broke a covenant. So when Adam sinned, he had a, there was a covenant there that he broke. So the details of the breaking of that covenant are given in Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 8 which is where Satan appears for the first time in the Scripture, and he appears, and he has already fallen. And we covered that. It's given in the Scriptures in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, as a result of this fall, man lost the authority that God had given him, and it is stolen by Satan. Lucifer had it originally, lost it when he fell, God gave it to Adam. When Adam fell, Satan usurped it. That's why Satan is now called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the prince of this world in John 16.31. God did not give it back to Satan. Satan simply stole it. But that he has the right to it, at least temporarily, is, is the basis for why Satan could offer the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. Jesus didn't say, well, you don't have the right to. He challenged him on his biblical interpretation because Satan has, as the God of this age, has the kingdoms. In Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, we're told that when Jesus returns at the second coming, man will finally exercise. We will recover our authority over the planet and it will once again come under the full dominion of man in perfect environment now that covers the covenant the covenant lays out the stipulations for the dispensation and the dispensation is that of, of perfect environment now let's outline the dispensations here or begin to the first dispensation of the first general age is the age of the Gentiles this is divided into three sections it begins with the Edenic covenant for the dispensation of human perfection or perfect environment that Ends with the fall, and God modifies the Edenic covenant with the Adamic covenant, and that introduces the second dispensation of conscience. Conscience will end because man, uh, the daughters of men, will uh, procreate with the demons, and in an attempt to destroy the uh, purity of the human race, and God will destroy the earth with a worldwide flood and reestablish the covenant with Noah. And that institutes the dispensation of civil government, so that's where we are, this first age, the age of the Gentiles. And during this time, what's happening angelically is Satan is trying, well, he initiates by stealing the planet, and then after that, he knows the prophecy in Genesis 3:15 we'll look at it in a minute, and he's going to try to um, uh, try to destroy God's ability to fulfill that. Now, the central person in the dispensation of perfect environment is Adam, and God is going to uh, work through him. The dispensation of perfect environment is sometimes called innocence. Innocence means uncorrupted by evil, malice, or wrongdoing, but it also carries the uh, denotation of naivete I don't like that so we'll say the dispensation of perfect environment to indicate that man's in perfect environment there's nothing negative no negative influences he falls purely of his own volition without any, uh, any negative influence on him whatsoever the responsibility in the dispensation is to the Edenic covenant and he abrogates that specifically at the point of the test But by failing the test, he fails in all of the other aspects related to character quality. He, By disobeying God, he fails to show personal love for God. By wanting to be like God, which was the temptation, he is failing to serve God. And by disobeying God, he is showing a lack of authority orientation. So... The test in the garden is to obey the mandate, and that means not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their failure was that they ate, and the divine judgment was the immediate judicial penalty of spiritual death. They immediately lost fellowship with God when he came to walk in the garden. They ran and hid, and God had to evict them then from the garden. The point of grace is that God does provide and promise a Redeemer in Genesis 3.15. Now, the last point I want to make is in relation to the angelic conflict, and that is that in this dispensation, in that dispensation, Satan scored a tactical victory by getting man to to yield to temptation and to uh, disobey God. So Satan achieved a tactical victory and gained control of the planet, wrested it from the man. Satan attacked the man's volition, which is the focal point in the entire angelic conflict and the entire angelic trial. But in winning the tactical victory, Satan lost the war. Because what happened was when he tempted the man and the man chose to sin, it gave God the opportunity to demonstrate something he had never done with the angels. And that was to demonstrate His grace towards His creatures, that He was willing to go far beyond anything they could ever imagine in providing a perfect salvation that involved sending the second person of the Trinity to become a creature, and to go through all of the physical suffering and spiritual suffering and spiritual death, and to pay the penalty for sin, showing that God's justice and His righteousness are perfectly compatible with His love. And so in Satan's tactical victory... He truly destroyed his whole case because he gave God the platform to demonstrate aspects of his character he never had before. We know this because of the many passages in Scripture that talk about angelic observation of the human race. When Jesus was incarnate, 1 Timothy 3.16 says that he was seen by angels. They were watching. They were learning things they couldn't learn any other way. In the church age, We have passages like uh, 1 Corinthians 4.9, for I think Paul says, God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Angels are watching us. They are learning about God's grace and righteousness and justice by watching unbelievers trust Christ. Not have to work to earn salvation, but to simply trust Christ. It's a volitional decision. Every time somebody exercises their volition to trust Christ, it's another testimony against Satan's charge that God is unfair. Every time a believer exercises positive volition and advances to spiritual maturity, it's another testimony demonstrating the, the falsity and the fallaciousness of Satan's charge against God in eternity past. 1 Corinthians 4.9, for I think God has that we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. 1 Corinthians 3.10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. To whom? To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. See, God is going to demonstrate things through the church in the church age that He never could demonstrate any other way. And he does this to the angels, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places is a term related to both angelic and demonic forces. 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul wrote to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his elect angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in spirit of partiality, showing that we are a focal point for the angels. They are watching and involved. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 2, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angel, this is 1 Peter 1.12, things into which angels long to look. See, they don't have direct involvement. One of the reasons is every angel was created individually. Because they're created individually, they don't have a, a racial unity. Well, remember, in Adam, we all die. In Christ, we're all made alive. Why? Because there is a racial, a human race unity. So that one can substitute for the whole. And that couldn't happen with the angels. Their only volitional choice was whether or not they would follow Satan or not. But for man we have a unique opportunity and God is demonstrating his grace and the lengths to which he will go to save his creatures in order to give the lie to Satan's charge. So next time we will come back and we will look at how the Adamic covenant changes the Edenic covenant and shifts the gears into the next dispensation called the dispensation of human conscience. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to look at these things and to see all that you have done for mankind, and that this is such a tremendous demonstration of your grace, that it is not based on who and what we are, but who and what you are. And we pray that as we continue our study, that we would be challenged to realize what a tremendous privilege we have as church-age believers. To be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, filled by the Holy Spirit, to be in a royal family of God and to have the vast array of spiritual assets which we have. That we might not ignore them, but that we might utilize them and pursue the spiritual life vigorously. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.